Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 242.PR2004, certificate number 19668, Cold Fusion. Just imagine, there's more energy in one cubic mile of seawater than in all the known oil reserves on Earth. I mean, you could drive your car 55 million miles on a gallon of heavy water. Maybe the end of pollution, warmth for the whole world. Whew, cold fusion. <laughs> Grab a quilt. I'm surprised, I mean, it just popped into my head. Why has no one come up with a malt liquor called cold fusion? <laughs> if I look right now, there will be an IPA called cold fusion. I guarantee you. Look, let's, let's check it out. Is there? There has to be. If there's not, we should start a beverage company immediately. Cold Fusion is an American cream ale-style beer brewed by Empirical Brewery in Chicago, which I just gave free advertising time to. There's also one by Equilibrium Brewery in Middletown, New York. And probably Will Wheaton is doing one in his basement right now. All all three of you beer producers should send us $5 each for this little... I thought you were going to ask them for a case, and I was (laughs) like, why? Neither of us beer. What are we going to do with it? (laughs) What a party we will have for our other friends who are not us. Are you somebody, I know that you are a science-minded person. Mm. I know that you practice the scientific method in all your affairs. In all things. In all things. Lying there at night with my bladder full, <laughs> I balance several factors. Fullness of bladder, what time is it, likelihood of being able to get back to sleep. My hypothesis is that if I get up now, I can pee and get back to sleep in time to get another hour of sleep in. Do you often... Uh, do that calculation and say, I would, I'm going to try and go back to sleep with a full bladder, a bladder full enough that it woke me up in the first place and, and just will myself to ignore it and sleep through it. There's a certain point where it's, uh, it's too late to get back to sleep. Yeah. You know, you've only got half an hour left. Your only choice is to stick it out. So there's a lot of factors in play there, which is, you know, the kind of thing that scientists have to That's right. judge all the time. And there's not a perfect experience. It's, it's a new experiment every night around 4 a.m. for me. Did you did you wet the bed as a, as a kid? <laughs> I did not. Well, see, I well, did. Well, I mean, as a baby, I did. Uh, well, no, I mean, I did we as a kid. We all wet the bed as kids. And I, uh, How late? Well, you know, late enough that it, that it was, an, that was an issue, an issue that kept me from going to slumber parties. So everybody knows you're not just outing yourself now. 
Oh no, that it kept it kept my mother from sending me oh. to. I mean, no, the other kids didn't know. It's Are like you kidding every, me? Every mom in Anchorage is aware. I would be a pariah. But but when I lay in bed and think, should I get up and go to the bathroom or can I get, can I eke out another 45 minutes of sleep? There's always that little voice in my head that's like, remember remember what it was like to be 8 years old. You've got demons. The there's a little there's a little John on one shoulder with a toilet and a little John <laughs> on the other shoulder with a pitchfork and a sleeping pill. But as a science-minded person, you can. Do you are you conscious of the pseudosciences that you cling to even though you know scientifically you can't justify or replicate but you but you still have a, your kind of uh like superstitions well no but like uh, we've talked before about ghosts and ufos things that that are considered sort of pseudoscientific but yet we still our personal bias will keep us believing in them even though rationally we know they're not true. Do you have things like that? Do you believe in in uh, homeopathic medicine or what, what What are some others? I mean, I don't know whether to... to, to Judeo-Christian religion? Yeah, there's that. I mean, you have to carve out... <laughs> you have to carve out your religious beliefs, certainly. Put them over here in a separate they, file. They're very hard to validate <laughs> through any kind of science. <laughs> Chiropractic. Maybe you yeah. keep UFOs and, and ghosts in your in your religion file. That, that's that, in my that is your file. like that's what it said on your uh, on your dog tags, right? Like yeah, they don't <laughs> UFOs. They don't know if they should put the star <laughs> of David or the cross on your grave. And in fact, they're going to put a, like a what an alien gray head, <laughs> blood type O positive. Please put uh, please put a Bigfoot blurry <laughs> picture of Bigfoot on my grave at Arlington. I am very rationalistic about certain things, and I will try to change my behavior. Like for a long time, I kept driving to Costco to gas up, even though I had done the math. And if you're going more than three miles out of your way, the discount doesn't matter. You should just gas up closer to you right. and save the gas of driving there. But I was in the habit of doing it wrong. So I kept doing it. Is that the same thing as believing in UFOs or God? Well, no, because you knew you were doing it wrong. You were just doing it out of habit. I guess. You weren't. You weren't I, was, I wasn't insisting that you know, some part of my head didn't think the universe made more sense. If I kept gassing up at the further Costco. Yeah, there are, there are. What's your example? Well, I mean, you know, there, there are routes across town that I know take longer, mm. but they, but traffic keeps moving. Okay. This happened. I was driving with my friend the other day and I was telling him the quickest way to my house. And I said, get on Aurora. And he was like, get on Aurora. What? No. Like, you know, some part of him balked it. And I was like, look at your phone. It's going to be two minutes faster. And he said, I don't care if it's five minutes faster. I don't like it. Right. It, 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 it does not appeal to my sense of how this neighborhood should fit together. That's right. So I'm not going to do it. And it, whereas I, on the other hand, if I'm told, hey, it's 20 seconds faster to take this <laughs> way that appeals to your uh, amygdala less, I'll be like, sweet. I'm the way your friend is. Like I have a, a sense of how you move through you're, the city. You're a mystic. You're a GPS mystic. I am. And when I see, when I see routes that I feel are unnatural, <laughs> That the computer says like, oh, no, you just get off here and go over there. I'm like, ugh, like pseudoscience. You're just like, God didn't make Adam and Steve, <laughs> but of GPS uh, navigation. You need to, you need to embrace the, the future, John. But there are a lot of, um, I mean, my sister is someone who practices a lot of sort of woo-woo new age philosophies and, and, uh, the last time I saw her, she was telling me how I needed to have someone blow a didgeridoo at my root chakra. Or she was just, maybe that was a crude sexual <laughs> insult, but I think it was referring to a, a new age belief of hers. I'm not sure that she would prescribe that to you, but she was just certainly describing how someone did blow a didgeridoo at her root chakra and 
you know, and the uh, effect it had. She told me that I had a chakra that extended above my head by at least a foot. Oh, and yes. I told oh. her I was worried about getting into cars. Oh, you did. You and, said, does it scrape on low ceilings? And she did not think that was funny. No. And I, that was a moment where I, where I had to question her aloha. Because I was like, <laughs> look, man, if your chakra is so, like, clean... If the didgeridoo blew all the, the dust off of it, why are you so mad? What good is your chakra <laughs> if it doesn't make you chill about chakras? She said, I think, something to the... She looked at us both and said, laugh on, laughers. Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> you can't disagree with that. <laughs> but there is a difference between uh, pseudoscience, which we, over the years, we've kind of established that there are a lot of pseudosciences, anti-vaxxing, being the most common one referred to today. Because it's a, it's, it's got critical uh, import either way. Right. P- people are actually dying as a result. Kids are dying one way or the other, spoilers, from not getting vaccinated. <laughs> They're dying from measles, not from mercury, <laughs> if you're wondering in the future. But pseudoscience, you know, pseudoscience is a problem in the United States, and I think in it's increasingly. I'm going to say, and I think in Canada, <laughs> in the United States, and I believe in our, in portions of Canada. The beginning of increasingly really fooled me into thinking you were about to say in Canada, and in American Samoa, possibly Guam. <laughs> well, and there's that little there's that little corner of Bangladesh. Pseudoscience is is sort of a, a modern phenomenon, and it, it's called pseudoscience and not just superstition because it takes on the appearance of science or, you know, we're, we're accustomed to science producing results that are verifiable. And then those results are used to prove further theories and prescribe certain behavior. So a shaman rattling his rattle and saying like the ghosts have left, that's not pseudoscience. That's not pseudoscience. But a doc, but you know, a 19th or a 16th century barber saying you have too much yellow bile and not enough phlegm. Like that might be pseudoscience because he's got a, he's got a system in his head that he thinks he can validate. Yeah, I mean, phrenology being another example of a theory that you can selectively prove without, I mean, the the thing about the scientific method, of course, is that the point of it is to work hard to disprove your claims, mm-hmm. right? To do everything you can to find the hole in your research. And that's a lot of extra work. That's why I'm still gassing up at Costco. I'm trying to find that hole. <laughs> But if you, you know, if you assert a claim, if you don't have like effective controls, if you're not doing double blind experiments, if you're, if you're kind of making up language to describe things that, that aren't part of the scientific canon. You might be mistaking correlation for causation. That's right. If you want to believe something, it's easy to get results that will tell you it's true. We see it now. Um, and, and also there's another, another thing of pseudoscientific beliefs where the results become very personalized in the sense that you know, children are dying or people are being saved. You know, there are a lot of ways that you can get the communist party was sort of famous for, I mean, we saw Mao's, um, backyard furnaces. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, it becomes tribal in a way. You're part of the group that goes to your conferences and is quite sure of X and you are angry at the establishment that keeps saying not X, not X. But pseudoscience is different from an area of science that's called pathological science. Pseudosciences like ESP, which has been, you know, rigorously studied and routinely debunked. In the movie Ghostbusters. In the movie Ghostbusters. Remember, only the hot girl can do it? Well. <clears throat> she really can't. Wait a minute. You know, that's a kind of an experiment that'd be interesting to put together. Maybe only hot girls can do ESP. 
Well, the one in Ghostbusters doesn't do a great job. Oh, I guess that's He right. just lets her off the hook. Maybe only like Will Wheaton's can properly brew cold, <laughs> cold fusion IPA. The, the kind of people who sign up for university studies just happen to be in the, in the demographic that can't do ESP. Like how? Like how, only, only mailmen can do it and they're not volunteering for these? Exactly. How, how could you do a double blind test where you got all the Will Wheaton's together? What is a Will Wheaton? Well, that's, what, uh, that's another thing we have to establish. But, you know, there are a lot of people in America that actually believe, I think a significant number of people in America believe that astrology is science. Oh, sure. What pathological science is, when scientists believe they have made a discovery, despite their experiments not being replicable by other scientists, despite the scientific method, the peer review process, unable to replicate their findings that scientists persist in believing that they have developed a new science and that the lay people, that the public, as this information is disseminated, the public seizes on the idea and a new kind of, not pseudoscience, but like a, a, an idea within science that refuses to die, even though it's demonstrably false. Where does, what's with the initial guy? I mean, I guess I can see the other people who have just seen the headlines and are hopping aboard the bandwagon. But the initial scientist, he or she, knows that their result is not replicable. Is it narcissism? Is well, it like, if only, they, if only they were seeing things my way? It's not just confirmation bias and wishful thinking. It's as little as the glassware wasn't cleaned. Yeah. There's a, an incident in the 60s where a, a Russian physicist by the name of, uh, or no, I'm sorry, a Russian chemist by the name of Nikolai Fedyakin uh, developed a substance called polywater, which was a water that that had a higher boiling temperature, a lower freezing temperature, a much higher viscosity. He just left a toffee apple sitting in his dish overnight or something? Yeah, the glassware just wasn't quite clean and there was contaminant in it, but it created a furor, an international furor. The Soviet labs were able to replicate this poly water and it had all these practical applications that were going to going to give them some kind of enormous advantage in science such that the newspapers at the time were reporting on a polywater gap because American labs couldn't replicate the polywater. And we still can't. There's <laughs> still a polywater gap. <laughs> but in like 1970, polywater was, everybody in the world would have heard of it. It was in all the newspapers like, what are we going to do about the fact that the Soviets have polywater and we, and we don't? And it was only after a lot of rigorous experimentation that it was sort of revealed that if you sterilize your glassware really well. <laughs> well, that was our problem. And, the, you know, and the Russians, they produced samples of polywater and said, here it is. And with chemical analysis, it was like, oh, well, this is. You it's got not, soap in it. It's, yeah, right. <laughs> there's some skin flakes in here. And, the, and to their credit, like the Soviet scientists all acknowledged the debunking or the the new results and said, oh, well, we didn't, uh, poly water wasn't real. But uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, we now have a hundred percent result that uh, if your power invents poly water, you will lose the geopolitical struggle. A hundred percent of all cold wars have been won by the country without <laughs> poly water now. <laughs> Do you think, well, that's correlation, not causation. <laughs> Lab technique is tricky. Like anybody who's ever taken high school chemistry knows like every single time we tried to get a flame test result to come out right or a spectroscopy thing or whatever. Like we were just dumb <laughs> high school kids with greasy faces and greasy skin and big fat fingers trying to 
you know, get our tools right and get our glassware clean. And we did a terrible job and we would get terrible results and we would get terrible grades. It was only the very meticulous redheaded girl that could <laughs> manage to get the, the solution to boil. My sodium turned green. We're like, how did she do that? <laughs> the term pathological science was coined by a scientist by the name of Irving Longmuir. 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 I don't think we need to say his name. We're never going to talk to him. We're never. <laughs> Irving Longmuir. Let's decide that it's Irving Longmuir. <laughs> he was describing the results of a, of a physicist by the name of Prosper René Blondeau. Blondelow. Prosper René Blondelow. I'm still saying Irving Longmuir is wrong. <laughs> name wrong. I'm not going to learn how to say this guy. In 1903, he conjectured the existence of a kind of X-ray called an N-ray. And this was... In the immediate aftermath of the discovery of X-rays, this was a very exciting time in physics, uh, the late 19th century. Because there could be all kinds of invisible stuff out there giving us, you know, new powers if we could just find them. Right. We were discovering the whole, this whole electromagnetic universe that, uh, and, you know, the electron was discovered and Blondelow in his lab discovered N-rays, which were a kind of visible spectrum X-ray, electromagnetic ray. You could shine a bright light and it would go through matter. Yeah, right. And and you it and seems dangerous. It would uh it you know, it could penetrate aluminum, the the N rays. And they were and he was a, a very reputable scientist, and it caused a stir the existence of N rays. But again, it was being replicated, but it was not in any kind of controlled environment, you couldn't actually find N-rays. You had to jump through a bunch of the ho same hoops he did, and then you got the same results. It was enough of a problem that a physicist by the name of Robert Wood actually went to try and duplicate the experiments. And while he was there, he went to Blonlow's lab and said, you know, show me, show me the N-rays. And Blonlow was just so pleased to kind of run his experiments for him. And Wood while in the lab, like reached over and took away one of the crucial elements of the experiment, like just sort of picked up and moved some prism that was essential to the detection and still the results were the same. Uh. And then he, re he, he actually replaced one of the detectors with an inert piece of wood and still the results were the same. This is, well, that's better. <laughs> look how, look how robust the N-ray is. <laughs> We can start getting superpowers from it in no time. So that was where the idea of pathological science came about, where, where reputable scientists would seize upon an idea. And, and because often the results are really measured in minute quantities mm -hmm. at first, and there are so many examples in science of, of surprising discoveries where careers are made and the known world expands as the result of, of some unexpected experiment. So you want the unexpected result if you're the guy in that lab. You do, but the problem is so often in cases where these surprising results are verified, they are, although surprising, immediately found to be in accordance with the natural laws. And universal, you know, right? right? Like you can, you, you can find them in a vast array of situations and they don't break the math. Yeah, they don't break the math. You don't find something that requires that we, that there not be gravity in certain parts of the country, mm -hmm. right? Or you don't, you don't find a thing that throws into question the nature of electromagnetism. But in a lot of these discoveries, it isn't initially clear how the new discovery is going to comport 
with known science. You know, the connection can be made retro retroactively pretty easily. But, but it takes time, it right? It takes time, right. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout in, in a more recent case we and we've talked about homeopathic medicine the notion supporting homeopathy Pathy, homeopathy homeopathy uh, is this concept of water memory yeah. uh, which was advanced by Jacques Benveniste okay I'm really so bad at people's names and other and foreign terms Jacques Ben Jacques Benveniste it doesn't matter we should you know what we should have we should have one generic French name <laughs> that we use for all the French people that come up on the podcast. And, and one Russian name and one uh, Italian name. And we just keep reusing. Oh, look, it's our old friend, Giacomo Baldini. Giacomo Baldini, as we last saw, was inventing the car wash. Currently, he's climbing Mount Kosciusko in Australia. He's just the one Italian guy we use. Thank goodness for him. We already have dumb Kevin for all our like poop-related needs. Tom Kevin, thank so, you. Okay, so from now on, Jacques, Jacques Benveniste. Benveniste, <laughs> not Bienveniste. Oh, sorry. That's the Italian guy. That's right. Uh, Jacques Benveniste conjectured that there was something in the nature of water that if you, if you introduce a solute into water, any kind of uh, thing that you would dissolve in water, and then dilute that water many, many, many times over until there's statistically almost no chance that there would be any of that solute left Not in the water. Not a single atom. Not a single atom of it in the water. The water itself would retain a memory of that solute that would be, uh, effectively could create yeah. an immune response. It, or It would pass on the properties. Pass of, on uh, the properties. Huh. Right. And so through multiple, multiple experiments, he kept demonstrating that these fantastic properties were true. And it was the foundation of the idea of homeopathy, and he, he submitted a paper to Nature, the science magazine. In italics. We can't, we, we can't hear italics on a podcast. <laughs> he, didn't. he did not go hammer it onto a tree in the forest of Arden. <laughs> he sent it to the journal Nature. Uh, and, the, and the editors of Nature were e extremely cautious about publishing this letter because, of course, it well, defied, it defied <laughs> science, right? Defied science currently says water molecules do not remember stuff because <laughs> how could they? But the, but he had confirmed in, in so many, you know, what appeared to be like scientifically rigorous experiments. He confirmed this, you know, that they did publish it, but with an editorial saying, let's, let's suspend judgment. We don't want, and they were, they were actually afraid to give some scientific credence to the homeopathy movement 
because all you have to do is publish it once, and there, there will the oh, people but, will always refer back to. Benveniste's work postdates the belief in homeopathy. Yeah, home, it, and it and it bolsters it with an attempt at a scientific explanation. It seems like the atom shouldn't be there. This thing you've been doing for centuries. But right. what if there was a vibrational memory in the water? Yeah, Benveniste isn't like a, he a homeopathist. He didn't invent it. No, and he's not even really pushing the pushing it as an ideology. He's just experimenting with this, with what he thought was some kind of undiscovered property in the way water works or in the way chemistry works. Uh It was no less a person than James Randi, the famous debunker, Mm -hmm. who went into Benveniste's laboratory and had had him as an independent observer and had them conduct the experiments over and over. And he noticed they could replicate the experiments, but only if they knew which test tubes had which expectations. And as soon as he double-blinded everything and, and put tape over... Uh, all the paper, then all of a sudden that, you know, the experiment fell apart and it's gotta be embarrassing for a lab to be doing really good work and then just find this. And then an outsider, a non-scientist, a layperson like Randy, just because he remembers, you know, he's a common sense guy with certain says, ni- well, ninth grade memory of how the scientific <laughs> method should work. This is going to work. You should be able to do it in the dark. There's a lot of upside if you get the big result. So it's a, it's a temptation. I'm 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 still mad at homeopathy from the time I went to. You ever go to PCC, the food co-op here in Seattle? I have been. Have you ever tried to buy your kid Tylenol there for a headache? Oh, I I did. I went to one. Uh, I, it wasn't PCC, but it was a natural food store, and I went to get Tylenol for my headache. And a very earnest, bearded young man there gave me, you know, put his hands together like a Presbyterian minister and tisk tisked me. Here's your St. John's Wort homeopathy homeopathic remedy. The the worst for me was in Germany, homeopathy is pretty widely accepted as a form of medicine. And I went to an actual pharmacy and wanted some Sudafed. And the pharmacist was like, Sudafed? That's a poison. You know, it's a controlled, it's a schedule C. Believer. Con- he thinks con- you're going to make meth. Yeah. Well, it was just like, not, not make meth. He was appalled that I would take this. Put it in your body. This terrible drug. And, and he gave me some kind of anti-allergen homeopathic solution that just, you know, made my allergies worse. The thing about PCC that made me mad is it looks like a grocery store. And so it's got an aisle that looks like a pharmacy aisle. And the the headache stuff's where you expect it to be, and the rollades are where you expect them to be. Everything looks the same. Right. And it's, it's even put in containers basil. that looks the same. And it's all just like <laughs> homeopathic headache remedy. I was not happy when the employee showed me my options. Well, one of the most famous examples of this is the topic of today's show, Ken. At long last. At long last. We have made it through all the French and Russian mispronunciations. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, path path. Theological scientists, and we've gotten to uh, an American one. Uh, well, and a, a British one. A, American and British one. It is the 1989 discovery of cold fusion. And I, as I say those words, I know that there's a certain segment of the of the Futurelings listener group that is just going to they're going to sit up straighter in their little uh, pods. They're going to sit up straighter on their abdomens. Because cold fusion... Their antenna are, tw- are twirling in anticipation. <laughs> cold fusion is, a, it it resonates very strongly with a subset of the kind of tangentially science-oriented people. Because when cold fusion was announced in this 1989 moment, when it was announced that some scientists had actually developed cold fusion, 
scientists by the name of Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons. It was so exciting and it was embraced so readily and so enthusiastically by the global media at such a perfect moment in time that it really felt like one of those dawnings of a new age moments where we would look back at this date, March 23rd, 1989. And, it's like the moon landing. Or, yeah. Yeah. And there would be before and after. This is Because if true, it would have remade the human civilization from the ground up, right? It would have changed everything we thought we knew about energy. Do you remember this moment? I was going to say, my high school science teacher canceled class that day. And we spent the day huddling around, you know, the news report in the Times or Newsweek or uh, International Herald Tribune or whatever he had as he explained to us what a huge deal this was and how fusion was going to remake civilization and we were going to have finally going to have the the Star Trek future and, uh, you know, clean energy, space exploration. It was all here. So I would have been in college at the time, but I had dropped out for... uh... For a semester? Let's call it a year. <laughs> I dropped out for a year. And at the time I was living, let's call it in my mom's garage. Mm-hmm. I remember this announcement and and pacing back and forth in the garage with my hands behind my back, staring at the floor, talking out all of the repercussions or all, all of what this meant. You know, I was I was in a spell almost where I was just like, well, this means that... Well, in that case, we'd be able to... Were you already a mad prophet or was this the thing that pushed you over the edge? Like, I don't know how long, how this semester had gone for you. It was such a watershed moment, such a, you know, it reverberated through everything to such a degree that I just needed to, I needed to talk out loud in order to just make the connections between, well, that would mean that this and that would mean that it's going to, all of, you know, energy capitalism is going to... Does your mom's change? garage still have all the the yarn pieces connecting all the different articles? <laughs> Well, exp- well, let's talk through this on a very basic level. What makes fusion cold and why is it better cold than hot? Well, so fusion, so there are two types of nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. One of them is fission, the one that we are that we use in nuclear power plants and in the atom bomb, where a, uh, a big unstable atom is cut in half or divided, yeah, split, split the atom into two smaller atoms and the particles that don't fit into the two smaller atoms then produce this tremendous burst of energy. And fusion is the sort of opposite process where you take two small atoms and fuse them together into a larger, more robust atom. But there are particles left over from that process that don't make it into the big atom. You know, they're the they're the ones like like me that semester in college who didn't make it into the <laughs> they don't quite fit in didn't make it into the larger atom of the following semester <laughs> and, and were set out in, set free into the world with a lot of energy a lot of destructive heat and energy <laughs> a lot of garage pacing so you're crunching two hydrogens into a helium right. instead of instead of splitting a large atom into smaller ones right. and this is better on paper Oh, well, I mean, the the thing about fusion is that it produces tremendous heat. I mean, fusion is how the sun uh, powers itself. I mean, fusion is a... Um, are, are you better than the sun? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the sun does, kid. But it is possible to produce fusion in a test tube. There is a, a kind of fusion, which is called... It's muon-catalyzed fusion. And a muon 
is a naturally occurring particle that is sort of like an electron. It more or less does the same job, except it's much larger than an electron. It's like 200 times bigger than an electron. And so if a muon edges its way into an atom, if it takes the place of an electron, the whole shape of the atom, the performance of the atom changes. I'm talking about a hydrogen atom. If, an, if a muon goes into a hydrogen atom, replaces an electron, all of a sudden, you know, the rest of the atom malforms around a muon. Mm -hmm. It produces a fusion reaction. And what's essential here is that because the muon is the magic special sauce that makes it possible to do this at a, a reasonably low temperature, right. whereas, you know, the sun is not, you know, if we can make the sun in a lab, and we kind of can do that with certain kinds of magnetically placed coils of plasma, then you can still get thermonuclear fusion. The problem is you're putting so much energy in to, to get the stuff hot enough that it's more than what you get out. And this is the problem with muon catalyzed fusion, which is that to produce muons, I mean, not, you know, they occur naturally, but to... You got to go find them with a butterfly net. Yeah, to find them with a butterfly net and, and distill them to the point that they would be useful in a energy generating process takes more energy than they would produce in the fusion they would make in muon fusion. And it's part, this is, this is a... Um, energy transference question that we see in a lot of new technologies, right? I mean, it, it, you could have a car that was powered by hydrogen, but in order to, to get that, get that, mu going, get that yeah. much hydrogen, you'd need to use much more energy than you'd be saving. I read an article about these new, uh, these new meats you can grow in a lab and to actually get them, get the meat molecules to grow from the stem cells. You just have to feed it, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of, uh, worth of chemicals, uh, you know, to, for, it, to, for it to feed on and, and grow the meat. And so, you know, you wind up with $3 hamburger patties. Unfortunately, you know, $150 worth of rare organic chemicals you had to order from China <laughs> to get you there. Right, right. And, and you end up then following, I mean, if you are the type of person that wants to walk up and down in your mother's garage speaking aloud about all of the chain, chain reactions – in a lot of these technologies, you create more pollution, you create more, you just expend more energy at, yeah. to, to make your clean energy or whatever. And this, there's even been arguments that with electric cars, there's some of this, like you're just at the consumer level, things are great. If you count all the mining and stuff that led to the, the battery and, you know, importing it across the Pacific and all these other kind of things you don't think about. Um, you know, electric cars are not as awesome as they first appeared, at least when they were new technology. Well, it's 100% the case of any situation where you could recycle rather than, um, than make something new. Yeah. I mean, when someone pulls up next to me in my big GMC, my 79 GMC and gives me the stink eye from their battery powered car, I say, you know, this truck has required very little maintenance over the course of it's 30 year life. How many cars have you, uh, <laughs> and you, totaled since then? Yeah, right. And you've probably, you've had 10 new cars in that time. And think about what goes into making a Prius, you know, the, just global economy. You're the real eco hero. I am. In your big exhausty truck. I mean, you know, my truck may burn a little bit more gas. It only gets 11 miles to the gallon instead of 11 D. It's got asbestos in the does. dashboard for some reason, but. <laughs> But, all, but those are all sunk costs. Right? <laughs> exactly. The asbestos is already there. But so Fleischmann and Pons come out and reveal that they have successfully 
uh, generated energy through a cold fusion reaction that basically just happened in an open jar. And their process was they put some, they ran some electricity basically through a solution of heavy water that had palladium in it. And these were heavy water and palladium were both substances that there had been a lot of experimentation done because they were they were substances that could give and take muons. They they were exciting worlds uh, within the within chemistry, where people were consistently kind of or, or over time were exploring these substances as potentially spaces where interesting interactions could happen. It's important to know that these guys are not cranks. Like uh, Fleischmann is one of the leading electrochemists in the world. These guys are at the, you know, doing what's at the forefront of this kind of alternative energy research. It really was unknown territory. It, and that, that was why this was so um, seductive, I think, to the world, was that Fleischmann could describe why this would work, mm-hmm. how it could work. And although it would require that our description or our knowledge of the physical world change somewhat. It wasn't like water memory. Our knowledge must be incomplete, but yeah. it, does, it doesn't necessarily mean that a lot of stuff was wrong. And the, the, the way that their experiment worked is that they sent this, they sent an electrical charge, a constant charge into their flask that had this palladium in it and the heavy water. And over the course of a long time of just sending this charge into the solution, the idea was that the particles would start to sort of exchange places with one another and that they'd be kind of stacking up and gradually changing electrochemical composition. Yeah, it's electro. You're basically doing electrolysis. Electrolysis. And then after an amount of time of kind of cooking, all of a sudden there would be sort of... uh, bursts of energy, like the temperature in the flask would rise, not connected to any increase in the electricity being run through it. And this is what they saw to their puzzlement. This is what they saw. bursts of heat actually happened. And it happened repeatedly, like, oh, there, you know, it just went up 20 degrees inside the flask, and then it would go back down, and then it would go up again. And they duplicated their experiment several times, and it was, and this was the consistent reaction. You know, they're very excited about this. They felt like they had created energy in a bottle and I think were mesmerized by the implication of it and by the fact that by the potential that they had, that the two of them had, were the Einsteins of tomorrow. I mean, they can see what's going on. Cheap, clean energy for all. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of, it, it would be kind of the, the end of our scarcity economy that we've had for all of human history. And this was in the late 80s a time when we were very conscious of global warming. We were very conscious of, or, you know, the, the dawn of a, a universal consciousness of this kind of stuff. And when I say universal consciousness, I don't mean some pseudoscientific idea of spooky action at a distance. I just mean that it, within the media. You don't mean Gaia, the spirit of Mother Earth. Was, I don't. I, I mean, this. like, if you were reading the newspaper, if you yeah. were inclined to read the newspaper, you knew about, uh, we had had, Several energy crises in the 70s. I was going to say the energy crisis of the 70s really caused a boom in this kind of alternative energy research, something that is, you know, because of the influence of big petrochemical companies, it's kind of hard to come by. But even in, you know, even in the early Reagan era, there was, a, there was a thought that this is what we needed to do. You know, the notion of peak oil, we already had our best year in terms of how much oil we were going to mine from the earth. And it was, we were going to have, we had reached a point where, we were in declining stores. It's easy to imagine that yeah. it's, it's all getting sucked out. I drink your milkshake and, right. and now 
if our civilization's based on this, we're in trouble. Yeah, there would be, there. we're running out of everything. So this idea landed in the popular consciousness at a, at a super right moment. Now, Stanley Pons was from the University of Utah, and Martin Fleischman was uh, an Englishman from Southampton. Uh, but there they were, were friends, apparently. Friends and, you know, science friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all had science friends. Science friends. What are you saying? They wouldn't go, to, they wouldn't go do paintball together? <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. There's another uh, another scientist at the same time working on uh, similar research by the name of Stephen Jones. Ooh. From- I hope we were going to talk about Stephen Jones. Yeah, Stephen Jones from Brigham Young. Do you know Stephen Jones? Uh, I never had a class with Stephen Jones, although I attended BYU. But uh, I loved, I did not know that they had sent their results to Jones for peer review because he became, as you probably know, infamous in our time for, uh, in the early 2000s, becoming a crank on 9-11 conspiracy stuff. I'm just asking questions, but I've run the numbers and I think... Building seven is a controlled explosion. He, and he thinks that uh, jet fuel, jet fuel cannot melt still beams. Yeah, and this did not go over well with BYU, especially at the height of the kind of the 9-11 patriotic, uh, I don't want to say, his, I almost said hysteria, fervor. fervor. There we go. Yeah. That in, you know, in, in patriotic Utah County, Utah, it was not a good look for this guy to be, be like, well, obviously we blew it up is all I'm saying. And I think he was, uh, he and the university had to agree on a mutually agreeable Separation, separation, package. yeah. He is no longer there, but uh, yeah, but he was one of these leading muon catalyzed fusion guys. He was in a muon catalyzed fusion guy, but he was working on it. He was, you know, he was doing experiments that um, that weren't directed at producing energy. Like he wasn't like a fusion guy at mm-hmm. the time, but he was doing experiments right in the same family, such to the degree that when he received their paper for peer review, he said, "Wait a minute, I'm doing this same work," and they all got together and they agreed that they were going to publish their papers on the same day in order to accommodate the sort of scientific who publishes first pecking order mm-hmm. um, so that when the inevitable Nobel Prize descended on these three, that they would share it. There would be a a, a recognition that they were that their work overlapped. And how, and how does that work, that announcement? Like it's already been submitted and that's the day it's going to be published or is that when they're going to? In fact, they had a plan that Fleischman and Jones were going to meet at the airport with their, with their findings, you know, with their reports and that they were going to put them into FedEx packages and send them off that same day. Like basically touch them, touch one another and be like, okay, twinsies and put them in the mailbox so that they would be received uh, simultaneously. I see. Or postmark simultaneously. But the University of Utah, which was funding some of the research of Fleischmann and Pons, 
uh, balked at this idea because everyone was thinking of the patentability of this technology and the hundreds of billions of dollars that it would generate. So the University of Utah pushed Fleischmann and Pons to renege on their deal with Jones. Are we thinking that the football rivalry between the Cougars and the Utes, it's uh, <laughs> it could be. so passionately fought on the Wasatch <laughs> front every uh, every winter, like has comes to bear here on the possibility of alternative energy? Well, you'd have to go to the you'd have to go to the head office to the administration building of the University of Utah. I mean, this is see. one of those rivalries that's taken very seriously. You know, in our part of the country it would be UW or Wazoo or it's it's Auburn and Alabama, but it's it's the kind of thing where everybody in the state has to choose a side. And there it's um it's it's given a literal it's called the Holy War because it's given literal religious ramifications. Oh, sure. If, if you're Mormon, you're probably rooting for BYU. And if you're not, you're probably rooting for the alternative, the secular University of Utah, even though... 80% uh, of them. You're right. That's a very Mormon <laughs> campus too in practice. Uh, so I really, those are very high stakes. And I can see a lot of these guys in the, whatever University of Utah offices are told about this being like, you want to co-publish with BYU? No, 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 no. Let's, let's figure this out. And they did. Uh, they raced them to, to publish. How would you say that? You They raced to print. them to print. There it is. And left Stephen Jones kind of hanging out to dry so that he had to, he ended up faxing his report in, in order to get it in as soon as he could after he realized that he'd been double-crossed. And is this, are we going to find this is not a good thing when university PR offices like uh, step in into the normal academic process? Well, what happened was Fleischman and Pons had a press conference, a major press conference on March 23rd of 1989. And as you can imagine, and we both remember, it uh, it took the world by storm. I mean, front, it really front page was, headlines. It really was front page headlines. It really was stop the presses kind of stuff. And a lot of this was because Fleischman was an eminent scholar of precisely this kind of, of uh, chemistry. So I remember seeing, their, uh, seeing them on the news uh, like on the news, not in the newspaper, but like here the cameras rush to the lab and it's like two kind of doughy white dudes in a room with a bunch of test tubes. And you're kind of looking for a blue glow <laughs> or some kind of Star Trek, like show us the fusion Stan. And it's just, you know, it's like a couple of small flasks and they're pointing over and they're like, look, it went up a flashbulb. <laughs> it went up 10 degrees. I mean, it's not there now, but it was, uh, and then the following day, the Exxon Valdez ran aground. No, I didn't realize. And spilled millions of barrels of crude oil into. I bet Stephen Jones thinks that's part of the conspiracy, too. <laughs> that doesn't just happen. Well, Jones, you know, Jones kind of lucked out a little bit in not having his name tied. It's true. People always think of this as the Pons Fleischman controversy. It's Pons and Fleischman. And he, you know, and because Jones didn't make any claims in his own research about about generating energy. So he, you know, the Nobel Prize ended up not being in contention. Uh, <laughs> nobody had to argue over over the credit for it. But he lost out on the Ig Nobel Prize or whatever the Razzies, yeah. the Razzies of the electrochemical world are. But the Exxon Valdez spill, which then was front page news around the world, it really put an exclamation point on the idea of cold fusion. Because See? here is exactly, you know, this is, if we were worried about pollution before, this is what oil dependency would looks like. Would this cormorant be covered in goop if we had listened to Plons and Fleischmann? They would not. And so the two the two events were occupying the front pages around the world, and, and people were, were making the connection between the two. 
the devastation of one and the potential utopic future represented by the other. You really are seeing the two very starkly, like time to choose, dystopia or not. That's right. And this was also a time when nuclear power as a system, a power generating system was in its really at a nadir. People were- This is post-Chernobyl. Post-Chernobyl, post Three Mile Island. We had decided as ecology-minded left had started rejecting nuclear power, although it had it had seemed to show great promise in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Here was a technology that kind of could appeal to everybody. Anyway, for the next month, labs around the world set up their very simple cold fusion tests, right? I mean, there, there was nothing to this process, really. All you had to do was have a little heavy water, a little palladium, and a, and a car battery. And so all around the world, labs were testing this theory. And labs were producing all kinds of results. There were quite a few labs that did replicate or claimed to replicate the experiment. A lot of labs could not. A lot of labs were producing a lot of things. There were some labs that produced Pokemon. There were labs. <laughs> Is this that... where Pokemon come from? <laughs> I had no idea. Um, the uh, Texas A and M and Georgia Institute of Tech both had labs that that claimed to have stable reproduction of these results. Uh, Stanford tried it and did produce uh, cold fusion, but then a few days later claimed that they couldn't, or they couldn't do it a second time. And as the month went on, this was all happening in this you know, this heady... We never see science in real time like this. It's, yeah. It's very interesting. From, from day to day, new reports were coming in and every every university around the world that could confirm cold fusion was reproduced in their lab. It was just like, yes, you know, open another bottle of, of cold fusion IPA. <laughs> but then, uh, then another lab would report that they couldn't do it. And you felt very strongly... And I think the scientists at the time were like, um, the promise of this technology was so great that you did not want to hear from a lab that couldn't duplicate it. Yeah. Uh, also, it seems like the absence of a result in, in the layperson's mind seems like, oh, well, keep going. You'll, you'll get there. You right. know? Whereas the positive result is, see, you know, we did it. I told you. Right. You almost want to say, you couldn't get cold fusion? Well, clean your glassware. <laughs> Right, rather than the rather than the opposite, um, but in the course of this one crazy month in 1989, all the labs that initially reported that they were producing these reactions, one by one, on closer examination, had to report that they weren't actually creating energy. Um, a lot of the labs, their initial report was, "Yes, it's working," but it was one degree Celsius. You know, the, the solution was... It was prematurely announced, just like the University of Utah. Right. And so the support for it started to erode. And by one month later, the 30th of April, 1989, the New York Times said God is dead. <laughs> but in this case, God was cold fusion. The New York Times is actually publishes essentially an obituary for cold fusion. Yeah, like the, the, the paper of record says, says nope. no, this isn't really happening. But Pons and Fleischmann refused to accept because Pons and Fleischmann could not reliably replicate their results. I see. They had figured out something. They knew it wasn't rep- replicable. 
And they rushed to print. Right, but they weren't convinced that that the that the idea had been debunked. Even right. even though you would in order for it to work, things would have to be, you know, science or the you natural it, world would have to right. be a certain It way. would be the same every time. But they think we've discovered some mysterious effect. We just have to nail down why sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. To them, it becomes a second order kind of a problem. They're, they are now pathological scientists, do you think? Well, edging that way. Uh-huh. And in August of 89, uh, the state of Utah... Utah is really playing a large role in this cold fusion game. Larger than usual when it comes to science. Um, the state of Utah actually made a grant of $4.5 million to continue uh, the study of cold fusion with the, the development of the National Cold Fusion Institution. And um, Well, do you know, to this day, cold fusion is the official spurious <laughs> electrochemical effect of the state of Utah. <laughs> By order of the legislature. The beehive state, except the beehive is a flask with a little like blue glow. Palladium. Blurb, blurb, blurb. By January of 91, cold fusion had become a sort of pariah science. I'm sure it became like Carson monologue material. It it becomes shorthand for for bad flaky science. For bad flaky science. But Fleischmann and Pons leave, uh, well, Pons leaves America and goes to France. There's a scientific lab there funded by Toyota called IMRA. And he continues his studies there. Like uh, the Japanese are still going to pour money into this to, in hopes of... So there are, there are several, the Japanese, the Italians, uh, the English, the Mormons, they're all <laughs> in their independent little silos feeling still somewhat hopeful because the promise of it, it's kind of like anything into oil. Yeah. The promise of it is so great that any amount of hopeful potential that it has seems to be worth the introduction of more, yeah, more even, even if somebody with capital thing is told it's only one in a hundred, but it's a trillion dollar technology. Well, you'll, you'll take the one in a hundred risk for sure. Little by little Pons and, and Fleischmann are sort of discredited. I mean, Fleischmann maintains that cold fusion is not junk science through the later parts of their careers. You seem like you have something do you have some uh, anecdote about Fleischmann and Pons? No, just that uh, like Pons was always very uh, reclusive. Apparently, like there was there was a meeting with the University of Utah where he was supposed to show up and discuss this new raft of results. And like the day before the meeting, they get a one line fax saying, "I'm going to France." Yeah, like and and come to find out that his kids have been taken out of school, his phone lines disconnected. Like the guy, the guy kind of disappears. Well, and, and because their reputation had suffered so greatly and they had become Carson monologue material. In a field where they never expected, you know. No, they were just reclusive chemists. That's got to be rough to to be known at all. And then to realize you're going to be known for ill. Well, to be known, to become famous heroes, and then <laughs> right. like to become synonymous <laughs> with bad science. And you know, there's kind of a thing where that totally fits the media arc, where the media wants the turn, like the media wants yeah. the heel turn, because the story's boring if it continues to be like, yep, cold fusion contested, like something's gotta happen. Like I remember the New York Post just going nuts when I put up a joke thing on my blog about how, were we talking about this on the, sh- on the show, about how like Jeopardy should introduce like killer bees and Alex Trebek should advocate for cannabis legalization. Like I was like, Jeopardy needs to shake it up and here's some ideas. And the post was like, (laughs) Ken Jennings bites the hand that feeds. And I realized people were sick of the kind of the goodwill of like, 
you know, Ashuk's uh, dad keeps winning on game show. People wanted the 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 heel turn. They yeah. wanted the next step. They wanted you to fall. What kind of a drama is it if there's no kind of second act reversal? And well, they're not alone in that. I can't <laughs> wait for you you to get your comeuppance too. <laughs> so this is a science story that came with a comeuppance, and the media loved it. That's exactly the arc everyone wants. And it, and it, it, it explains why you would move to France, where. Where, I mean, the French are much I, more I credulous. I did not move to France. People <laughs> totally forgot about the New York Post. Should have done. <laughs> um, but Cold Fusion, to this day, uh, it remains a shorthand for a pathological science. I mean, I, I end up making reference to it periodically as just an example of what can and will go wrong if you if your hope gets ahead of your process. It also seems like it's a PR hubris moment, right? Like if the scientists had just done their due diligence and their peer review, none of this ever would have happened. And, but, it's, a, and uh, it's a University of Utah problem. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like non-scientists got their fingers in the pie. Have you noticed, like it's kind of a thing I noticed on the internet where I used to love sciencey headlines and I felt like I was a fan of science because I would notice when the paper said, is chocolate good for you? Or, you know, whatever these <laughs> these stories are. You subscribe to Discover. Exactly. Yeah. And Discover now has some, like, worst science article of the week thing because this happens so frequently that somebody will publish something academic, one piece of it will become reported in the popular press, and will just, you know, if one guy gets some kind of seafood parasite, Right. Then the first popularization of it includes, they call up a guy and they're and he's like, well, sushi consumption is on the rise, so... And then suddenly, the next article says... With sushi consumption on the rise, we could see thousands of cases of this parasite. Here are the gross pictures. And, you know, it becomes a game of telephone where you're seeing headlines that have very quickly, within a week, that have nothing to do with the actual published research, and no one's the wiser. Well, and we see this so much now in social sciences. Yeah. Uh, because all it takes, I mean, all you have to do is have a theory that uh, that guitar music is is bad for women, and, you know, two weeks later, it's like, wasn't there, you know, a study of how many social science findings are replicable? And it's like, it's a half. Yeah, or it's right. like 40% or something. It's not great. Well, in the case of cold fusion, despite no one having produced any real measurable energy from it, uh, as recently as 2012, a, um, a millionaire by the name of Sidney Kimmel gave $5.5 million to the University of Missouri to uh, fund and found the Sidney Kimmel Institute for Nuclear Renaissance. Skimmer. Uh, which is Skinner, yeah. Uh, with, with the stated intent of pursuing cold fusion research, now in Missouri. So fortunately, like... Less of a religious component. Yeah, just take it away from the Mormons for a minute, at least. <laughs> so it's become kind of a fringy thing where somebody's always going to be, like these guys trying to get a car to run on water, there's always going to be not particularly qualified people trying their hand at cold fusion. I mean, it's modern day alchemy and, um, you know, alchemy was fairly well debunked in the 18th century, but I swear to you right now, somewhere in his garage, somewhere in the upper peninsula, there's a guy trying to make <laughs> gold out of coal. If I just put the right bath salts in this coal, it's gotta be out there. The truth is out there. And that concludes Cold Fusion, entry 242.PR2004, certificate number 19668, in the omnibus. Now, speaking of things that have been thoroughly debunked, uh, social media actually does not exist. It does not make us social, and it should not count as media. 
Correct, correct, correct. It should be called antisocial uh, memes. <sighs> antisocial memes. <laughs> it's, it's a little longer. Yeah, no, there, there's, what is it? What is social media now? What is it? It's just a, it's just a form of, of emotional cancer. Like it has, be, is it self-replicating? Is it like a, uh, does it attack healthy cells? It's definitely a kind of a, it's a thing you do to yourself. It's a, it's masochism for sure. Right. It's, uh, or maybe it's like stimming or something. You, you know, you, you just need to keep feeding your eyeballs. It feels good, but it's bad. I mean, that's just a description of any addiction. It's like, a, addiction. yeah, it's an eating disorder basically, yeah, okay. but for your eyes. Oh, I like that. It's an, it's an eating disorder. I wish you could vomit out everything you saw. Oh, no, that's bad. Don't do that. You don't want to, you don't want to, that kind of eating disorder either. Uh, yeah, I don't mean literally. I wish you could psychologically vomit out everything you saw on social media every day. But uh, until that time arrives, uh, you can fo- you can vomit out uh, our own content by following us at uh, at Omnibus Project. I never know if I should say the at twice. It annoys at, at the Omnibus. It annoys Project? me on when on Twitter when I see people be like, "I contacted him at Delta or whatever." You know, like they're using they're making the at sign mean at and this is a this is a uh, username. And I feel like it shouldn't do double duty. But then when I'm saying it out loud, I don't like saying at, at Omnibus Project uh, or at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, I said John Roderick. I'm now putting the schwa in everywhere just in case. <laughs> John at Roderick. John Roderick. It's now, you're now an Italian. You're now our go-to Italian guy. Uh, you can all, Giovanni Roderico. You can also uh, find the Futurelings on Facebook people interested in uh, the contents and destiny of the omnibus. You can contact us through electronic email uh, in this era, probably not yours, but in this era you can contact us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. That's the case where you have to say at before the address and then after the address. At omnibusproject at gmail.com. Contact us via um, (laughs) theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can also send physical uh, artifacts if you've got a if you've got cold fusion chugging away on your shelf. Mm. Pop that palladium baby into a mm-hmm. Tupperware and send it on into us. <laughs> we'll do your peer review. You can send that to Omnibus Project at PO Box five five seven four four, Shoreline, Washington nine eight one five five. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, where we still burn oil and try to turn coal into gold. They've got fusion, these people. Like, they're, they're laughing at our uh, silly attempts. Sure, it's, it's their sentient palladium <laughs> sitting in their baths, their nice warm baths of heavy water. They're and just spitting out energy right and left. Shuck, shucking off uh, little muons. They communicate through muon bursts. <sighs> we have no idea how long our primitive flesh-based civilization survived. We hope and fear that the catastrophe... We can't hope I'm and sorry, pray. you're right. We hope and pray. John hopes, I fear. I hope and fear simultaneously. It's so not aloha. You contain multitudes. Uh, we hope and pray that the uh, catastrophe we, we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, in the form of us following junk science into the bottom of the sea, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.